This week, we're an hour outside of L.A. at Fontana, California's Auto Club Speedway with racing legend Mario Andretti. I think it all comes from really the desire to, to succeed and, uh, and the passion to pursue. The decorated driver was born in war-torn Italy, spending much of his childhood in a refugee camp. What were the living conditions like? God, I mean, I don't even want to think about it, to be honest with you. He and his twin brother were determined to race, despite a father adamantly against it. Here he was sacrificing so much to create opportunities for you guys, and his sons were going to kill themselves. Our conviction was clear. You know, we, we were going to pursue that no matter what. And the costs that came with success. Your wife, uh, there was a quote, that's when I finally realized I didn't have a husband anymore. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I wanted to start by taking you back to when you were growing up as a child. Your father, Gigi, uh, ran seven farms, had a small hotel, uh, a, a restaurant. You know, successful uh, man before your family was displaced. Um, how would you describe what life was like prior to being displaced when you were growing up? Well, life was normal as you would have it as kids. Uh, you know, we went to school and played and all those things. However, what is normal during war? You know, Grandma, when I was born, the war broke out. So uh, it was, I always said there was just anarchy in that area. You never knew uh, who was really in command. And there was so much confusion. And because of that, you always heard all of the, even the arguments within the family, you know, what's going on. You knew the anguish was there, and you knew that something wasn't right, but then we didn't know anything else. As kids, you know, you go on, you go to school, you do your things. And, um, and again, you know, my dad went to work, and, uh, and he knew the perils that he was up against, potentially, you know, because uh, there were kidnappings and uh, all sorts of things, you know, that, uh, um, you know, local thugs would just uh, take on, you know, some authority and then uh, score some, you know, disagreements and just weird things were happening all throughout. And, uh, and my father felt that he was a target. But um, I think what really saved my dad in those days was there was respect for the clergy. And um, Uncle Priest, uh, who raised my dad, was forever, you know, part of our family, right, in our home. And I think there was a certain respect for him that, uh, that probably spared my dad from potentially even being kidnapped and, and worse. It, it was uh, one night that you had to move overnight undercover with your entire family to a refugee camp. I, I was talking to your brother Aldo uh, the other day, and he said actually at the time, you and him liked the idea of moving because, you know, you're eight years old, don't, don't know any better. Um, but what were the circumstances that led to the family having to move to a refugee camp? Well, the war ended in 45, and, um, and then the area became occupied, and the uh, by Yugoslavia, but the borders were redefined. It was Russia, U.S., and, and um, England that determined where the borders would be. And uh, we were trapped. The whole peninsula of Istria, where I was born, was trapped inside Yugoslavia under 
hardline communism, Marshall Tito. And uh, so as soon as that happened, uh, there was a choice to be made. Uh, either you succumb to communism and, and, uh, and what, meaning you don't own anything, uh, you know, you just, uh, uh, you just live there and work for the state or maintain the Italian citizenship, uh, which the majority of the population there did, and move on and move on with just what you can carry. You know, basically you were allowed to, to leave, and, uh, <clears throat> but you left your home, you left, you know, most of your belongings behind. And, and there was a promise by the, uh, there was an agreement uh, between Yugoslavia and uh, Italy that um, we, uh, whoever left their home and their holdings would be compensated a certain number that was uh, uh, somewhat agreed between the two states. And, uh, and that was honored, maybe 20% of that was honored mm. along the way, but that was almost like the, the little bit of a carrot to say, okay, we're leaving, but at least we'll be compensated, we'll be able to just make a life you know, back in Italy somewhere where it would make sense. And that didn't happen that in didn't happen. your family's case. Um, you end up thinking, the family thinks the stay in the refugee camp will be short, ends up lasting seven years. Yeah. What were the living conditions like? Pretty basic squalid to some degree even. Uh, uh, the sanitary conditions were the part that, that was the, the most disturbing, quite honestly, because we were, we were right inside the walls of uh, the city of Lucca. And you know it's basically a medieval city, you know, and and they, uh, there were not too many amenities in this building where we were, which uh, uh, was an old monastery, and then it was a college, but it was basically an empty building. Which this is the reason why they put us there. And they were we were there with probably about maybe um, thousand to fifteen hundred people, I think I would estimate, and wall to wall, you know, we were in a large room for. Uh, the most part, um, uh, with, I think there were like uh, eight or 12 families, we're all separated by blankets. And um, so, as you could see, uh, you know, you, the, the uh, sanitary facilities were out there in the courtyard, you know, a ditch in the ground with a tent over, and you know, and this was uh, uh, the two genders separated, but you know, it was, you know. What do you most recall from the experience? Oh, gosh, I mean, uh, just, uh, you, you just, clearly, you just didn't want to go to the bathroom, you know, because of that. And, uh, and the smell of that, uh, the disinfectant, the DDT was a thing, you know, we're always spraying that around always. And, uh, and you go in there, oh God, I mean, I don't even want to think about it, to be honest with you. After you became a successful driver, uh, you end up taking your family back to visit the land that your parents once owned. What was your father's reaction when he saw it? It was very emotional, as you can, you could imagine. But my dad was very controlled, always, you know, very proud. And uh, but I remember we were up on the on the on the top of uh, the town square, uh, Piazza Andrea Antico, and he's overlooking. You know, he could see actually as far as he as I could go. Uh, you know, some of his holdings because he owned like 800 hectares of land, seven wow. different farms like, you know, 2,200 acres. And, um, and you could see like, you know, like in the commercial you see with that Indian, you know, when somebody's littering, you know, with a tear. He had this tear coming down, but he was, he was very stoic. But 
you could see a tear coming down his eye, you know, that uh, uh, that's what I worked for and it's gone. It's not mine anymore. But um, it, it was just obviously, it had to be emotional at that point. Uh, but I can tell you one thing though. Sure. Because of the opportunities that we always had, you know, with what what provide, this country provided to us as kids. I always to say to my dad whenever we'll be chatting, I said, Dad, I says, uh, do you have Tito on your Christmas list? I said, because you know something, out of a big negative, a positive came out of it. So thank you very much for sacrificing at the time. I said, but look at the opportunity that this provided for, for us, your kids, you know. So I always reminded him of that. Why make the decision to come to America? Well, that was fairly easy. Um, we kept correspondence with the uncle on my mother's side who had immigrated uh, early on, uh, like I think uh, early 1909 or something like that. So he had, a, he had made a life here and grew a family. And, um, and while we were in a camp, we maintained correspondence with him. And at one point, you know, he knew that okay, you guys, you're still in the camp, you, haven't, you don't have a home yet. And he said, why don't you come to America and I will sponsor you because uh, you needed a sponsor to obtain, you had to have visas. It was no longer uh, Ellis Island where you could just go there and just, you know, okay, uh, given a passport. But um, no, uh, so uh, in 1952, my dad applied for visas Three years later, he had almost forgotten about it, uh, visas come through, and uh, so it was decision time. And I said this a million times, I said, so uh, Dad said, well, <clears throat> we're going to America. I said, but we're only going there for five years, and then come back, rich. <laughs> and uh, so that sort of softened the idea of just, you know, moving on and sure. going to an, entirely different life, entirely different continent and so forth. So you get to the States and reasonably soon thereafter you, you and your brother get into racing, but your father vehemently opposed to the idea. Uh, how, how did you hide it from your parents that you guys were racing and how long were you able to keep it hidden for? Well, first of all, <clears throat> the biggest defense for us was uh, uh, the language barrier which, um, you know, it was only two years after we arrived that we started building the car, and just four years when we started racing. So, and, uh, you know, I don't think my dad ever really learned English properly. So, uh, for them, it was always tougher. And so that was, to, for Aldo and I, that was our protection, you know. And, and you would actually would not understand. Be, you'd be written up in the paper, uh, and then your father's co-workers would congratulate him at work <laughs> on the success you and your brother were having in racing, and didn't know any of it, Well, right? it didn't dawn on him, and he, would, he always thought that uh, they were congratulating him, you know, patting him on the back for the work that he did, you know, because he was, uh, obviously, I think he was a very good uh, worker, and. Uh, and, and again, so it never really dawned on him uh, until, you know, Aldo's accident. And speaking of that accident, your brother uh, ends up getting in a severe accident in, in a race, fractures his skull, is in a coma for six days in the hospital. Uh, your brother Aldo was telling me that, that actually even then, um, you initially told your parents something completely different happened than what actually happened, right? Yes, when that happened, obviously they, um, 
Uh, and I was racing too that night, by the way. I was racing for somebody else because we always had one car and two drivers, but for this final race, I got a ride with somebody else. So I was racing as well. But um, when the accident happened, uh, when they took him away, I had to call my mother, obviously. So I called her and I says, well, mom, <clears throat> I was racing, but uh, Aldo was watching me. He was standing on the back on the bed of a pickup truck. Then he fell off the truck and he banged his head. I said, we'll be home in the morning. And she was very quiet on the other side. She knew better, you know, mothers yeah. always do. And, uh, and so again, that's, uh, uh, but I, I think all along, she knew that we were racing. Uh, and she, obviously, we never said anything to her because, uh, directly, because uh, she would have been, she was in the middle of it all anyway. Mm -hmm. But she would have condoned that. She would have said, you know, Go for it, boys. To give the injuries some context, I mean, it quickly became evident the severity of it. I believe a, a priest uh, read your brother his uh, last rites. rites in the hospital. It apparently, was possible he, he could have died there. Um, when did you finally decide to tell them what actually had happened? The word spread out like wildfire that Aldo is in a hospital, and uh, you know, and and I didn't. I didn't have to break the news. The news was already there. But the next, obviously, uh, I stayed there uh, with the respective girlfriends, which are our wives, my wife Deanne and uh, and Corky. All those uh, at the time they, they were just dating. Uh, we stayed and we slept, uh, you know, just basically in the hallway. Your brother gets out of the hospital, um, and your father later learns that the two of you were building a race car to continue racing. And it was at that point that your brother Aldo told me, I mean, he was just beside himself because he felt like, you know, here he was sacrificing so much to create opportunities for you guys and his sons were going to kill themselves. Um, how did that impact your relationship with your dad and how were you ultimately able to get him to come around? Well, precarious is the word, I think, at the time, because uh, uh, he, he thought that he felt vindicated uh, to the fact that, see, you guys can get hurt. And then he felt, okay, they learned a lesson, now we're okay. Then he sees us, he got a brand new car, and we're racing, he shows up at the gas station where we were parked, and he with my mom, he's got his 51 Buick, and, and uh, Oh my gosh, we see him, and I was smoking a cigarette besides, so he didn't even know we were smoking. <laughs> and so we had this, uh, you know, the driving suit on and everything. So things oh, can't get God, much worse I figured, for you. Oh gosh, my suit was white. I think I was whiter than the suit, you know, and uh, I figured we're dead. Now we're dead. But again, you know, uh, he had, he thought for sure that we learned a lesson, and, and uh, uh, now this was the, uh, the ultimate disobedience, in a sense, you know, to him. But, um, you know, we always said all along that um, uh, our conviction was clear. You know, we, we were going to pursue that no matter what, mainly uh, because the, we set out to do it knowing that uh, potentially there is an issue, you know, with the safety, whether you could be injured and, and worse, but uh, you accept that. You accept that calculated risk. And even though he did not understand that, he had to realize that uh, the dream, uh, the, uh, the commitment, the, the desire 
was stronger than that. It's stronger than just a passing thing. Okay, don't do it because it's dangerous. Uh, uh, once we embarked in that and we were racing, I said, I'll never let go. I'll never let go. And the rest was basically history. There was a period in uh, the late 1970s, the early 1980s for you, once you became obviously professional race car driver, where uh, IndyCar and um, American Motorsports, for that matter, really took a backseat to Formula One because you were competing in multiple circuits all around the world. Uh, why do you think you were able to have success in multiple circuits and on, you know, multiple cars? Well, I think, Graham, I think it all comes from really the desire to, to succeed and, uh, and the passion to pursue. I mean, uh, I, I just, I love my driving and, uh, and I, you can see all through the ranks, I was fortunate enough to, you know, to be pretty much at the top. You know, to win. You know, as I was going from stepping stone to stepping stone, you know, I I was fairly successful. So, because of that, I would be invited. I would always have an opportunity to be with the top team. You're with the top team. Your best opportunity, probably the only opportunity, is to win. You know, to bring the results. Did you hate to lose more than you like to win? Oh gosh. Yeah. Lose, it was just a dirty, dirty, dirty word. Yeah, obviously. You have to hate to lose. More than you like to win? To, to be, yeah, to be a winner. You have to hate it so bad. And, um, but you know something? Uh, once you taste, you taste that victory, I mean, you accept nothing less. I mean, there's nothing that can pacify you. And quite honestly, there are times where even I look back and uh, if I had the luxury, like we all always, we all would like to have, to redo certain things in our life, to be a little more patient, I just risk so much. Sometimes when I was driving second or third, which I could have been, I should have been satisfied that, that day, you know, you can't win them all. But I wanted to, winning is the only thing that really brought the satisfaction to me. How would losing impact you? Well, it's, it's something you want to get over with quickly. You know, you don't want to dwell on that so much because, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's such a negative. And uh, so as soon as you have a bad weekend, you can hardly wait to just fight again, you know, just uh, regroup and, um, and get back where you want to be, have a chance to redeem yourself. You know, it's interesting though, during that period when you're competing in IndyCar, Formula One, traveling all around the world constantly, you've said those were not your fondest years. It really put a tremendous burden on you, in fact. Explain why. Well, you know, I always said that um, to achieve something that's worthwhile, there's some sacrifice involved, always. I mean, of uh, sacrifice uh, with me was a lot of it was uh, maybe I wasn't sacrificing as much as the family, pretty much, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, my kids reminded me so many times, Dad, you know, Barbie says, uh, you weren't even my graduation. Uh, you know, uh, I wasn't at too many birthdays either, you know. So um, it, on the family side, luckily, I had, you know, a wonderful lady, my wife, Deanne, she just kept everything together, you know, so, uh, but she was the one who was sacrificing because, again, you know, there were no picnics, 
every weekend somewhere. You know, when people uh, relax and spend time with the family, I was working. And uh, so, uh, if you want to call sacrifice, that I think it would be it. Uh, the travel, yes, I mean, uh, you know, it's never fun because, uh, but I had it so well oiled in that area. I had my own airplane, and you know, even one, it was back in the late 70s, in one year I did 24 crossings with the Concorde alone. I read your book and thought it was great, and, and your wife, uh, there was a quote from your wife in the book that I thought was uh, really interesting. and But this was after your uh, Indy 500 win and the subsequent uh, fame that, uh, that that brought. She, she said in the book, uh, quote, that was the most difficult time that I remember over his whole career because we just got inundated with requests for interviews and appearances. That's when I finally realized I didn't have a husband anymore. He, he belonged to the public. That hurt and it took a lot for me to accept it, but eventually, if you're going to stay with the marriage, you have to accept it. Your, your reaction when you read that for the first time? Well, Deanne is very direct and uh, very honest in every way uh, to a fault. And, uh, and you know, she just says it like it is. And, but uh, at the same time, she was my rock. She was solid as could be. And I don't think I, quite honestly, the more than I even uh, sort of uh, uh, reassess the situation as life goes on. Uh, she was so much more important that I ever gave her credit for because I needed to have my mind serene. I could not uh, perform properly and, you know, under, you know, situations where, you know, you're, uh, there's always uh, the, the concentration, everything is so intense, you know, because it's dangerous on top of everything else otherwise. And, and because of the way that she treated me and, and the way she handled the situation, it just, I was clear. I was just, uh, you know, relaxed sort of thing, and which was really a total benefit for me. It was a selfish thing, really. And she did that for me. And, and, uh, and I can, again, I can realize uh, what she was going through because uh, the more demands, the less time that I would spend with them and the, the more that she had just to do it alone. You know, so <clears throat> uh, again, I uh, uh, it always takes a team to, to really uh, uh, accomplish certain things. Uh, and she was really the best teammate that I could have possibly had. How challenging is that when you're at the height of your career, traveling all over the world for your professional pursuits to uh, then still, you know, maintain a strong family and have success in that arena as well? Well, that was the whole trick, you know, and uh, family was always, uh, you know, paramount, always very important to me. But uh, as you can see, I was, again, fortunate enough that, um, you know, with everything that I was doing, um, I, I could afford certain um, uh, luxuries, if you will. Uh, such as, uh, you know, very early on in my career, at the end of the 60s, I uh, bought my first airplane, and I had airplanes throughout my career whereby, and that what facilitated the movement of my family everywhere where, you know, I could load family and some friends, load them up and psh, go. The 1992 Indianapolis 500, the, the first time ever four members of uh, a family have competed in the event. How did it come about that so much of your family wound up in racing? 
Well, as you can see, uh, Aldo uh, drove uh, for from 59 to 69. He, you know, after he had his first accident, he drove for another 10 years. And then he had another very serious accident, which was definitely not his fault this time. And, and, and I begged him to retire then, you know, and, uh, and then we bought a business and so on and so forth. But, you know, the racing, that still remained in the blood. And uh, so his kids, you know, you had Mark, you had John, you had Adam, you know, that came along, and um, and they all started driving go-karts, like with my kids did, Mike and Jeff. And, you know, John is the one that pursued it further. So you can see we had Aldo's family, you know, just uh, pursuing the same thing as my side was, you know, with the second generation. So here we go, and as you say, in 1992, the first time the four members the same family at Indianapolis. And the times that, you know, even Michael and I finished first and second, started races first and second, you know, eight, 10 times. And, you know, these are some of the things that ultimately as the careers went on, when you got the kids uh, pursuing, you know, the same business, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword because uh, all of a sudden I'm my dad, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the safety aspect and, uh, you know, the danger that, uh, you know, they're facing. but. I always said, you know, do it for yourself. Make sure that you don't just try to please one of us, thinking that that's what we would like to see you do. And, uh, but the fact that once they were in it, they were, you know, successful, then you know they're enjoying it. Right, and now today the Andretti name in racing extends from ownership with your son Michael to racing with your grandson. Third generation. Uh, Mar Marco. Um, you know, the 35 year career uh, you had, which is obviously the accomplishments are unrivaled in uh, American auto sports. I mean, between the four IndyCar Series championships, the being the only person ever to win in Indy 500, a Daytona 500, and then a Formula One championship, uh, Associated Press Driver of the Century. Um, how about the most satisfying moment from your career? Well, the, I couldn't say just one, but the, you know there were many. Um, it's a time when uh, uh, when good things happened to the family, you know, together. Uh, 1986, we were um, the Pocono 500. Um, there was um, Michael and and I were in the in the car. Jeff was driving a support race. It was like they called the Indy Lights. And uh, Jeff was on pole for that race, and he won that race. Michael was on pole for the 500, and I won the 500. Now, between the three of us, we cleaned house, everything that was to win that weekend. You know, and how do you, you know, how do you, how do you celebrate that? You right. just raise hell, you know? And, um, and it's just amazing, and, and then, the other part is, you know, when something like this happens, you know, the families are all, you know, part of it. They're all jovial about it. So these are satisfying moments. You mentioned this briefly earlier, just speaking to the dangers of the sport, uh, the race you won your Formula One championship, your teammate uh, died in a crash. Uh, in another separate crash, your very dear friend, Billy Foster, was killed. Uh, you were at the racetrack for 
both of those. How did those impact you? Oh gosh, I mean, that's when reality sets in, you know, because you, you try not to dwell on that side of it, the potential danger. And when it hits so close to home like that, you know, it's just, um, you pause and, uh, and, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating, uh, no question. I mean, Billy Foster, uh, when we were qualifying for the uh, Motor Trend 500 Riverside stock car race, and um, and and he was, he when he was the one in front of me to go out to qualify, then he had the accident, and I had to go out after him and knowing, and we were rooming together, you know. Can you imagine, you know, that? Uh, oh gosh, I mean, uh, and the families spent time together. So th these are, those are devastating times, you know. We. Uh, Realize that um, you know there could be a price to pay, you know, and uh, but we all felt that uh, we're willing to take that what we call the calculated risk. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, uh, you have to be prepared to take that risk. And you cannot dwell on that side of it, believe it or not, because that's the worst thing you could do. I think that um, <clears throat> by holding back or being uh, sort of uh, fearful of something happening uh, could be more dangerous than anything because then you become hesitant. And, um, and so again, you just have to have a mindset that uh, just uh, carries you in a positive way and say, I'm gonna be in it. I mean, that's it and hope that it's not my turn. You said uh, going out to qualify shortly after Foster's death was the single hardest thing you've ever done. Um, how so? Obviously, can you imagine? I mean, here I'm trying to go out there and, and go as fast as I can and everything. I know that just my best buddy that just, you know, just ended his life, you know, and, uh, and yet I got to go out there and really press hard. Uh, it was probably one of Big, biggest test of my life, you know, in, in, in that game. You know, and he said, you just hope it's not gonna happen to you. But the, the one thing that I had, I never feared getting in a race car. You don't, if you fear getting in a race car, you don't do it. But I did have concerns. And my only concerns were, one, being a victim of somebody else's mistake, which you can't help. Or the other one, have equipment failure, which again, you can't help and I've had injuries because of that. Um, I had the confidence in myself always that I don't think I could make a mistake big enough that it would do me in. I just had that confidence, and I had to go with that. There was, uh, I think, uh, one year where seven drivers were killed, four over the course of two races. Your brother's career basically ended because of a, a severe accident. Um, how dangerous was the sport back then? The sport uh, was um, dangerous to the point that, um, you know, during a driver's meeting, you look around, you know, and you said, you know, I wonder who's not gonna be here, you know, like the, at the end of the season or whatever. You know, you just knew really? that some of us are not gonna be there. You accepted that because that was the norm. I mean, that was the average. And as you said, you know, uh, this year when we lost seven guys, two were my teammates, you know? And, uh, and so again, 
Uh, it was just one of those terrible things. And, and this is why I think as drivers, we, uh, we got smarter in the sense that we started uh, looking at this thing in a different way. There was a, a, a sort of an element of uh, accepting the danger. Like if you're gonna pursue this, you know what, kid, pursue that, you know, you might take your, have to take your licks. Uh, we always thought that, you know what, if we're getting so smart, much smarter by improving the breed and making the cars go faster every year, why can't we make them safer? Why can't we, and we started. I mean, in Formula One, we organized the GPD, the Grand Prix Drivers Association, uh, Jackie Stewart, myself, and Nicky Lauda, and so forth, and, and, uh, and, and we started sort of uh, demanding certain standards to be part of, uh, uh, you know, to, to be a stock. And, and, and the other part is that almost every safety feature in a race car is a performance penalty. So it, they, so it has to be legislated in a rule book. Mm. If you're going to implement something that's safer, uh, then you gotta, you gotta say, okay, the rule book has to state every race car has to have this, no matter what model you have, but that feature has to be incorporated. Today, uh, safety is pursued so vigorously in, on every part of our sport. How big of a difference is there oh. to when you guys race? Like uh, night and day? Night and day. And quite honestly, uh, I said this many, many times too, I don't think our sport would have survived, you know, and, and as it became more and more commercial, you know, uh, by being as dangerous as it was in the 60s and 70s especially. Because um, when you get companies that spend millions of dollars to be part of a team and so, they don't want to go to funerals. Right. You know, and they want to celebrate. So those negatives you cannot even afford. So, uh, and again, I'm knocking on wood, but uh, the drivers today have the best chance ever to retire on their own terms, you know, and I mean, right up in the, you know, high 90%, you know, 99% chance, which is fabulous. Yeah, I want to bring up one of your accidents because nobody got hurt and the footage was so spectacular. The uh, 2003 uh, accident in Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, take me through what happened there. Well, it, it was uh, just a normal practice day. I was um, uh, just really substituting one of uh, my son Michael's drivers, Tony Kanan, who's currently uh, active. And uh, he had um, a hairline fracture of his wrist in a previous race in Japan. So there was a question whether he could qualify at Indy. And the way the rules read at Indy, uh, a qualified driver doesn't really necessarily have to qualify his car to be able to start the race. In other words, I could qualify first, he would have to start 33rd in my car. But I, would, I was the insurance for Tony to qualify in case he couldn't do it to ensure that the sponsors and everything are included in the race. But anyway, so uh, my my son and I sort of got together, and um, my daughter actually suggested to, Barbie suggested to uh, Michael, said, why don't you have dad qualify? 
So I said, fine. I said, I'll do it. I said, if we have a proper test. And, and we did have, there was a proper test at Indy, you know, a, a pre-May test. Uh, all the teams were there and, you know, and I was totally in my element, you know. Uh, everything was great. The day was going beautiful. And actually, by alone, I was quickest time. And I, but I wanted to put a big number on, on, on the clock there uh, toward the end of the day. I always went for that PR. Trying lap. to show off. So trying to show off. So I caught a nice, I was catching a nice slip streaming on an, another car uh, driven by Kenny Brack. And we go into turn one, and I was just the right distance to really pick up on it back straight away. But he blew an engine. He blew his engine and it scattered all over. I mean, he had a bad crash. And uh, by the time I arrived there, I mean, I just had barely time to react. And um, a chunk of this safer wall, which had just been installed at Indianapolis, went in the middle of the track. It was a white piece of like a foam rubber. And I hit that, and that dislodged the downforce of the car, which, you know, the car is glued to the track by like 4,000 you know, uh, feet of force believe it or not. And, and the, but the car was dislodged and it started flying like an F-16, you know, at 220 plus miles an hour. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna meet the creator this time. But uh, I was very lucky, you know, the, the three flips backwards and I landed on its wheels. You know, so I came away with just a few thumps. But uh, you said you, it seemed like you were in the air for like a half right, hour. Yeah, I know. It's just uh, it's amazing how that works. What are you thinking about? Is like you're actually as the crash is happening? Well, I hope it doesn't hurt so much. You know, you know it's going to hurt. But um, you know, just one of those where you have no control and you just you know, you're but for the grace of God. <laughs> You've said before that you've achieved a lot more than you deserved. Uh, why do you believe that? Because uh, I've been spared. You know, I dodged a lot of bullets, and um, and that's probably just again, uh, someone was looking after me. You know, and I had the faith, and and for some reason, you know, I was so fortunate to have a long career. And because of that, I was able to accomplish pretty much uh, most all of my ambitious goals. I have nothing really that I uh, would say, okay, you know, I wish I could have done that yet. Uh, so uh, how could I, you know, not be satisfied with that? Why make the decision to retire? To retire? Than well, uh, you have to be realistic too, you know. And the one thing that I always, I looked at uh, some of my peers, uh, that um, were very successful in their careers and sort of because of the love of driving, they sort of overstayed it and then were not competitive at the end of their career and retired under that cloud. This is something I was so fearful of that. I said, I want to remember hopefully my last days that I was still a force to be reckoned with. I still could win a race. And that, that was really my whole objective here, you know. And, and I, I pressed that envelope, I mean, plenty, because, I mean, I was 54 years of age at this level of the sport. You don't see too many dudes, uh, you know, for right. 54 years old out there. And, uh, and I was, you know, uh, at the very last, even in my very last race, I was competitive. I was quickest in the morning qualifying, I mean, practice. And then in the race, uh, we had a 
it was a puncture. I came through the field. I was coming right up, you know, to the top five. We had an engine blow toward the end, you know, but I felt, and I was passing a lot of young guys, you know, so I felt good about it. You know, I felt at least, okay, at least I'm finishing my career and, and I'm still competitive. And that was big for me. Uh, it was something that lingered, you know. And, and then, like I said, my wife said, okay, you might have gone. I might have gone, you know, because I really, you know, luckily and healthy and could have gone another couple of years. But at least after it happened, I figured I have no regrets. None. I mean, I've been so blessed, you know, throughout to have been spared, as you said, uh, you know, throughout, you know, my uh, 36 years active uh, continuously. I only missed two races because of injury. I mean, how lucky is that? Going through all those periods, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And uh, so, uh, yeah, how could I not be satisfied with that? Uh, in the remaining moments I have with you, just a, a few uh, random topics. The first being uh, Paul Newman. Uh, explain how you and the late actor Paul Newman got to know each other. Oh, it's, um, it's purely coincidental that I was driving, this was back in 1967, I was driving a Can-Am car for Ford Motor Company, and, and we were in Bridgehampton, Long Island, at race day. The car was probably one of the worst cars I've ever driven. And uh, <clears throat> it was, but it looked beautiful, you know, the honker. And uh, I show up on race morning, and it's got a big Paul Newman painted in the front of the car. So, you know, I said, oh, Paul Newman is sponsoring this, you know. So, and all of a sudden, here shows, Paul shows up. And, uh, you know, I was totally starstruck, as you could imagine. And uh, uh, I sat him in the cockpit, and, um, and inquisitive as he is, that was his nature. He was really taking in with all the gadgets and asking a lot of questions. And then I took him for a ride in the um, pace car, which was uh, one of the Shelby Cobra cars and Bridgehampton is one of those elevation type courses you know with a lot of blind corners and uh, you can scare somebody very quickly and very easily in other words and you could tell that he, he became fascinated because he was really white knuckling you know but um, he sort of does something that appealed to him and uh, and two years later I don't know if it was by coincidence here he's doing this racing movie you know winning about, uh, you know, Indianapolis driver and so on and so forth. Before you know then, he has this SCCA driver's license. He's driving amateur races across the United States. And then he's winning. And then he becomes a, 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 a Can-Am team owner. And then I lured him in to join uh, Car Haas to <clears throat> field the team, you know, where I spent the, the longest stint that I've had in my career with the team, 12 years. And, um, and I, when I came out of Formula One, I was already, you know, like it was 40, well, 41 mm -hmm. years of age. And I won 18 more IndyCar races and a championship with them. You and Paul Newman end up becoming dear friends. Tell about these yeah. uh, bets that you would make each other using different currencies. <clears throat> oh, gosh. I mean, he, he, uh, he and I uh, used to do crazy bets uh, about anything. Uh, I mean, uh, but uh, okay, whether it be is you know the Stanley Cup uh, series, mm. whatever. Never be in dollars though. 
never dollars. It was always like a, a it would be, uh, like if it would be dollar seventy nine, he'd pay me back in rubles, <laughs> Russian rubles, and uh, things like that. Like it, one one time, I think I got like a couple, a couple million rubles. <laughs> so, you know, How did that come back? Oh, you just, I don't know where the heck you found them, you know, but all of a sudden I get a glob of rubles, which is coincident, coincided with, with our bet in dollars, you know, that we had. Uh, and one time we had, a, again, it was less than $2 bet, and he sends it to me, uh, FedEx, he FedExed the check to us, which, you know, probably cost him nine bucks to FedEx. Check, you know, and he knows that type of thing. He was a guy, he was a kick, you know, because uh, there was a side of him that was just not known generally. You know, he, um, uh, everybody always thought he was very reserved and very, he was definitely very private. But once he just sat down to have a beer and you know, once he felt comfortable with, with his buddies, you know, then he just, he was so much fun. He was a kick. I mean, the movies like uh, you know, like uh, you know, Sundance. The, the, sure. The, the, the movie. He loved uh, Robert Redford too because they were like alike, you know, uh -huh. to real pranksters, you know, and uh, and but he could tell that he uh, even while he was acting, he was having fun. He was in his element, if you will. How well do you recall um, taking a Nevada Highway Patrol sergeant? Uh, at 200 <laughs> miles an hour on a, a Vegas highway? I don't know if we div should divulge this. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> um, actually, yes, there was um, um, a, um, a sergeant from the Nevada who shall be, remain unnamed. <laughs> um, <clears throat> was befriended one of my uh, uh, good friends uh, at a Lamborghini dealer in, uh, in Las Vegas. And um, so Vic Cullen calls me and he said, that Mario says, uh, the sergeant would like to just two, 200 miles an hour in a Lamborghini. I said, where? I mean, where? No, on the road. <laughs> he says, I said, well, I said, all right. I said, so we figured it was Sunday morning by 9 o'clock and, you know, light traffic, so we have the best shot. So we said, all right, let's go. And uh, so we're on Route 15 on the way to Lake Mead, I think, and, and uh, anyway, uh, and, and I but just get it up pretty good, and, and I get it up to about 190, uh, on the speedometer anyway, at 90, 92, and then I just ease out of it, come over a rise, because I was closing in on traffic, you know, obviously I was very careful, but it was just sparse traffic, but, mm -hmm. you know, and then as far as my eye could see, I see this Mustang, it was trooper, you know, like, uh, you know, the patrol car, just burning out, you know, just coming out. Oh, gosh. So, <clears throat> obviously, I pulled right over, and this uh, young trooper, it just, I mean, he had his hand on the gun, actually. <laughs> and he comes over and says, what in the world, you know? I said, and then I said, hey, Sarge, say something, you know? So, and they knew each other by name. But this youngster, you know, he, he was serious. He says, Sergeant, he says, I'm gonna have a reprimand on your desk Monday morning. <laughs> the guy said, just relax, relax. He said, we're just doing a pre-run, he says, uh, for the running of the bulls. He said, they uh, contribute uh, a lot of money for a benevolent fund and everything, <laughs> which is true, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so 
anyway, so uh, uh, on, on, uh, just before we taken off again, I asked, I said, officer, I said, how fast did you get me? He said, 183. I said, I was over 190 just before the rise. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I can claim a official 183 on the highway, which I will never do again, promise. Uh, really a pleasure, sir. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.